Welcome back to Entertainment Geekly. I am Darren Franich, senior writer, and across the table from me, he was a little late coming in today because he had to drive all the way from Connecticut because his smart house was on the fritz. It's EW's Jeff Jensen. I was further delayed by grabbing some breakfast with my new friend Leon. Um, who may or may not be real. What is reality is the question that we are going to try to solve about Mr. Robot this week, which returned for its season two premiere. You have written about it at great length. I'm Mm. sure there's so much more to say about this season ahead. Um, Later on, we'll also be talking about some things we're excited about for Comic-Con this week. You'll be there. I'll be there. Untold thousands of other people will be there. Playing Pokemon Go. I still don't know what that is, Jeff. Like, I'm terrified about the impact of Pokemon Go on Comic-Con. Oh my god, I didn't even thought... Okay, so, so Jeff, this will be good because you have children, so I, I assume you're deep into the the throes of the Pokemon Go epidemic. What is Pokemon Go? What's been the effect in in your family? I mean, I, I don't know if I can actually explain to you what Pokemon Go is. Thank goodness, because I really don't care. But it's this augmented... <laughs> it's this augmented reality game. This is appropriate for us to be talking about in the context of conversation about... Mr. Robot. It's this augmented reality game where basically you go hunting for Pokemon monsters in the real world. So I think the idea is you load up this app on your phone. The app notifies you that there are Pokemon in your area. And uh, so you go hunting for them. So if there's a park near your house and near my house within three blocks, there are two parks. Um, And they apparently are crawling with Pokemon monsters, my children tell me. Um, That's too bad. What is that doing for uh, housing prices in your area, by the way? (laughs) Does that that drive it up or drive it down? (laughs) I'm in a monster-inhabited neighborhood. Um, But yeah, so I think they go hunting for them. And so you walk in your world and you are going to the location where there are Pokemon monsters gathered. And you like are, but you're like hunting for them, I think, through your phone, you know? So it's like. And th- this is why people have been walking in the middle of traffic then. It's because riding, they're, they're like looking through their phone. Falling down cliffs. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's this idea where it's like, I'm reminded of, of the Elliot line in the premiere of like uh, the thick film of Facebook friend requests. <laughs> Pokemon Go is basically an interface of life through the thick film of a Pokemon like, you know, app. Well, and I mean, you know, this is a stunningly good thing to be talking about in the context of Mr. Robot season two. There was a two hour premiere that aired, you know, in your review, you kind of mentioned it was very much a kind of table resetting in a way. Yeah. It wasn't so much a let's get the ball rolling as let's resituate the ball somewhere and then maybe maybe at the end we'll kind of give it a little push. With an added twist of, as we've talked about before, you and I, before we, we started the recording here, with, with the twist of a radical reset for the characters, they are very different. Yes, we're resetting the table for the essential problem that, that, that Elliot has with himself and the world. And similar, similarly, the people in his life, if we can all agree that the people in his life are real. Debatable, um, or, debatable. <laughs> or at least some of them, like Angela and Darlene. Um, but yet at the same time, we are being introduced to them in radically different situations with radically different relationships to their world than we did at, certainly at the beginning of season one last year and even to some degree at the end of at the end of the season. Yeah. And, you know, one thing we want to address this week, Jeff, it's not just what is reality to go a little deeper into this, to go to go deeper into the thin film that separates <laughs> reality from digitality, from various strains of reality on Mr. Robot. 
the show now seems to be openly uh, asking you, if not kind of playfully demanding you, to question almost on a scene-by-scene basis how much of this is real, how much of this is kind of a bit of fantasy stacked on top of reality. Like, you know, when we see Christian Slater in a scene between Elliot and another character, is it just Christian Slater in that scene who's not real? Is it the other character? Is this all happening inside of Buffy's head, inside of the insane asylum where we left her in that one Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode? (laughs) reference and my least favorite hour of television in in, in the Buffy run. Is that right? Oh, Oh, interesting. I hated that episode. Well, and, and this is this is a good question with Mr. Robot, because it's not just what is real. For us, what we're trying to figure out is, you know, to what extent yes. does it work that the show now seems to live in this yes. strange liminal space between reality and fantasy? You know, like, in the episode, we get reacquainted with Elliot, who is in a very different circumstance now. He is living at what appears to be his mother's home. He is hanging out with what appear to be some local people, one of whom only talks about Seinfeld in a very Seinfeldian diner, which already immediately conjures up strange questions about how much of this is real and how much of this is sort of Elliot's fantasy derived from pop culture sources. Um, He meets Craig Robinson. Great, great use of Craig Robinson, by the way. I think this going to be a great piece of casting. I mean, for, like, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, he, he, here's someone who, you know, has been such a great comedic figure. And, you know, this is something that I, I think Fargo has done really well, is this, the casting of comedic personas in ways that can be actually quite insidious and quite kind of, you know, can lend incredible dimension to characters. And I just think that Craig Robinson in this show is doing interesting work. But again, the show seems to be kind of asking, well, is this is this happening? Is this not happening? And to what extent does that matter? I mean, how, how do you kind of feel about the show's quote-unquote reality now, Jeff? Like, are you still, are you brought into it? Has the kind of hallucinatory quality, does that kind of, do, does that leave an asterisk next to some things as you're watching the show? Or are you kind of okay with the fact that at a certain level, we're experiencing this through Elliot's mind, whether it's real or fictional or some fantastical realm in between. Yeah. What I want to be true is that everything that we saw in season one happened. That was reality. That um, I think that if we start getting into things like all of the show from the very beginning has been a hallucination has been this like artificial this 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 virtual reality that has been self-generated within Elliot's head uh, that that could really be problematic for me I so I need to know and I want to believe that season one happened in the real world um you know that 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 the only hallucinatory aspect to it was his relationship to Mr robot mm-hmm. does that make yes, sense yes totally yeah. and 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 so even because What's interesting about what's happening on the show right now is we are in the kind of post-world of what F-Society did. And, you know, we saw in the season finale that F-Society delivered this you know, this thing that somehow crippled the economy, crippled E-Core, that caused this, you know, this this incredible hack that really shifted things in the world from a recognizable world that we all inhabit to something slightly different. Right. And which, which seems to me to invite to leave open the possibility that everything from there could be something that Elliot is imagining or could be something that, you know, if, if, if we imagine someone who's a little bit crazy, 
is like sitting at home watching television during like the 2008 uh, economic crisis or something like that. Like, you know, there's actually bad stuff happening in the world, but does that person then start imagining scenes like what we had between the evil corp uh, CEO and the people in the White House? You, you yes. know, like like that scene, which I loved to be clear, and I loved how it was shot. I loved just the, the way it kind of built. That scene also could be interpreted to me in a way that works as being like, well, yeah, this is the nightmare of what happens when Wall Street goes to yes. the White House, right? right? Like it's, you know, this is the kind of backroom handshake, the room where it happens. This is like the the men in that very first scene of the Mr. Robot pilot. This is where like the power is all decided. So that, yeah. that stuff works for me, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I, what I would say then is that if we can agree and assume that season one happened, then yes, I do find very intriguing and very compelling, at least for now, but maybe not for long, that here to start season two, either everything we're seeing is, is Elliot's delusion, is a fantasy, is an illusion, that's that, that and we're in his head, and we're going to find out uh, uh, that there's a lot of theories out there among fans that have been postulated. I have my own version of it that I talk about in my recap. The idea that, um, you know, if we remember what happened at the end of season one, we left Elliot in his apartment and someone was knock, knock, knocking on his door. And so now what maybe what we could speculate is, is that um, that was some person or some agency or maybe the authorities coming to take him away. And so now here in season two, he is somewhere else. He yeah. is in a psychiatric hospital. He is in a he's in a prison. He is in a safe house that is owned by Tyrell, um, and that he is com he is he has retreated completely into this fantasy that's in his head, and that it is comprised of yes, inspired by pop culture references but also the news of the day, his own personal memories, and bits and pieces of information that are coming his way from people who might be visiting him or trying to connect with him, trying to bring him out of this sort of like mind palace that he's lost in. So um, I'm open to all of everything that we saw in those first 90 minutes to two hours. Is that even the things that didn't include Elliot, like that, for example, the CEO um, uh, of, of, of Evil Corp having the meeting with the, with the Stooges in, in, uh, in, in, in Washington, D.C., or even like Darlene setting up um, Knowles um, with that stunt, getting him to burn the money in that take me, uh, take me home sequence. All that, that kind of stuff. That sequence, or, yeah. or I'm also open to all the stuff with Elliot is a fantasy. Is, is is that illusion? And then everything else outside him is actually really happening. Well, because, so you, I want to talk about, like, a theory that we were discussing before that I hadn't heard, which I will now call the hot Carla theory, um, <laughs> which is that, like, the things that are happening in the, the reality outside of Elliot with Darlene and with Evil Corp and all of that, how that relates to what Elliot is experiencing That's right. right now. So, for example, how that might work is that... Um, I thought it was interesting in the premiere that you get things like in that first hour, two huge events and well, one huge event and then one kind of small throwaway detail. Let's start with the big, huge event, which is that in, in, in Elliot was visited by Gideon and his Gideon came to visit Elliot in his mom's house. And Gideon made this petition to Elliot to come clean, uh, to come forward and help exonerate Gideon. Um, 
And Mr. Robot didn't really like that idea or that kind of like uh, Mr. Robot saw an opportunity, whatever. Long story short, he ends up like slicing Gideon's neck with a knife, right? And then, um, uh, and then in the next hour, what do we see with the one scene with, well, we saw two scenes with Gideon. One, he was being interrogated by the FBI. But, but the other thing is that he, he, got, he got met by that uh, conspiracy theorist in the bar and that guy shoots him in the neck. Yeah. Right? So now um, my question is, is that is it possible, one way to make sense of all of this, is, is that that scene with Gideon and Elliot and Mr. Robot in which Gideon gets slashed didn't really happen. What happened was is that Elliot is aware of this event that's taken place in the world that Gideon got shot. Yeah. Well, and like whenever we're in Elliot's home, the, the TV is always on in the that's background right. playing news. Yeah, 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 right, right. So maybe here on the news that like Gideon got shot and now he feels guilty. He feels responsible for this, that because of the events that he set in motion, Gideon has suffered for them. Mm. And so now this is how that's is getting expressed in his reality which is Mr. Robot cutting him. This is just, that, that is just symbolic of him feeling responsible for what has happened to Gideon, right? Mm-hmm. Gideon didn't really come and visit him in his mother's home. Something that actually kind of doesn't make any sense to me, which is I'm getting the sense that what we're supposed to believe is, is, that, is that Elliot is like on the run or has gone underground. Yeah. So no one should know where he is. Yes. Yes, so totally. maybe Darlene even, does. Even but, like, yeah. Oh, sorry. Like, even like the treatment of his mom so far, I find kind of fascinating because you know it is it is the same actress that we have seen throughout the show in flashbacks. Like she seems to be just sort of around him. Yes, I don't, I don't believe she said anything yet, which to me is a, a a telltale sign of like you know maybe that's just a curious filmmaking choice or maybe it's a specific she filmmaking said, choice. Time to get up. <laughs> time to go to bed. What's going on in there? Yeah. Right? I, I, I assume that we're going to get an episode, if this is all like a fantasy, where I wouldn't be too surprised if we get the proverbial episode that like that shows key scenes that we've already seen, but then kind of like from the point of view of like what really happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. like, is mom really mom or is mom like a guard like in the prison or mental hospital where Elliot is currently trapped, now, now, right? And to drill down, like what needs to happen on the show such that if that reveal happens, it does not feel cheap or it does not feel like this has all been a delaying tactic or that the show has just been obfuscating rather than revealing something. Right. Well, let's talk about the hot Carla thing. Okay. I, I Sorry, like the idea that yeah. you call this the hot Carla thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to the hot Carla. But, but similarly in this, another, another idea with this is that I thought it was interesting that in the first hour of the premiere, we get introduced to this peripheral character in Elliot's world, a new, new life, although a character that he calls his personal totem Hot Carla, which is like the, the, the local pyro. And the local pyro is like burning Samuel Beckett's waiting for Godot in a kid's like <laughs> red wagon, right? But then it's interesting to me that like in the next hour, we get the scene where Darlene runs the stunt on Evil Corp in which he get, she gets um, uh, uh, Knowles, the new chief technology officer of Evil Corp, to burn the $5.9 million in cash. So you have these two kind of like pyro moments, these two kind of burning moments. Um, And you you could probably argue that like, you know, philosophically, 
like in, in ways that my, my hyper-caffeinated and dumb brain right now can't really kind of do for us, which is, is there some kind of equivalency that we can make between the themes and ideas of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot and what that money represents to the world and yes. the society ideology and, you know, the, ultimately the, the meaninglessness, the bull bleep of, 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 of reality, you know. Um, but again, that could be an example where Elliot knows that Darlene did this in the world because he saw it on the news. Maybe Darlene came and visit, visited him. Well, I mean, yeah, like, that like kind one of thing. thing. And that's how he's assimilated. Like, hot Carla is Darlene in his fantasy. Well, and one thing to keep in mind here that the show has this interesting problem now. I think to the show's credit, it seems to be treating it like actually a feature rather than a bug. The show has a main actor, Christian Slater, who was not playing a real person. <laughs> that is a basic established part of the show now. Now, like you could say like, well, that's that seems to be a, a you know, to the extent that most people prefer watching things where everybody is at least a little real on screen, that seems like a problem. But what I find interesting is the show also has this interesting quality where, you know, we are we, we are inside of Elliot's mind, and he is even talking to us in this incredible kind of second person narration that is is gets more haunting as as the show goes along, and yet there may constantly be revelations about things that he has been doing that he is not aware of and that we are not aware of, such that, like, Darlene in the episode, when someone asks her if she's seen Elliot, she brushes it off and says, like, that's unimportant right now. That could mean what we experience in the episode is, oh, well, Elliot's gone and they're, they're not interacting. Quite the opposite. This could mean that in his Mr. Robot persona, Elliot is doing things that he is not aware of. I'm suddenly being reminded of something, Darren. What was the Christian Slater show on TV from a year ago oh! when she played split personalities, right? Oh my God, right? my own worst enemy. My own worst enemy. Yes, where he was a spy who, like, in his daily life, like, he, the way that they activated him was that his spy persona would go to sleep, and then in his usual life, he was just like, he was like a family man or something like that. I gotta <laughs> believe that there's someone out there that has already done a lengthy exegesis on how my own worst enemy explains Mr. Robot. Oh my god, incredible. How come I didn't think of that soon? Oh my god, okay, we need to, we're gonna fall down this this rabbit hole later. But it, it's all interesting to me because, like, the show seems to be treating that as a great chance. That, like, in fact, major moments with our main character will happen off screen, unbeknownst to us, and will continue to motivate things. Right. Because maybe Mr. Robot... And that's, that's kind of working for me so far, which I was surprised about. Um, and the other thing that is working for me is... One thing that I was thinking about watching this premiere is that the, the whole Mr. Robot persona and the way that it relates to Elliot and, and seeing Christian Slater talk to Rami Malek on screen. Last year, the touchstone was quite openly Fight Club. I mean, there, there were yeah. quotes from the music of Fight Club and, you know, Sam Esmail has talked about the influence of that. And so that reveal felt very Tyler Durden-y. In this premiere, it felt more like Head Six inside of Baltar's brain on Battlestar Galactica, which was this this fascinating kind of running internal dialogue that was never quite explained. Like you never quite knew: is she real? Is this part of Battlestar Galactica's mythology? Is Baltar just kind of crazy? Like that worked because it it gave this nice little added layer of drama to everything, and yeah. I, I I like that. It does feel to me like at any moment the Christian Slater stuff on this show could topple over like like so many Lego blocks. It seems like Sam Esmail has thought about that, which is probably 
for the best. I hope so. I would also say to like to your uh, Caprica Six Battlestar Galactica kind of comparison. In my recap, I also kind of talk about how I detected a lot of one flew over the cuckoo's nest um, in the second hour, in particular, of the show. And, and, and there, in Cuckoo's Nest, in the movie at least, the point isn't to question like what's reality and what's not. It's an element in the book version because it's completely narrated by the character Chief, who's an unreliable narrator. He's a, a slight paranoid schizophrenic, and that he experiences reality in a kind of like crazy heightened kind of way. But it's interesting to me the correlations between the book and Chief, for example, and possibly like Elliot, but just to make it simple and not go completely down that rabbit hole, you know, kind of like what's essential to that story, both in the book and in the movie, is, is that the character played by Jack Nicholson, like Reed Christian Slater, you know, R.P. McMurphy, is this sort of like anarchist radical who's trying to upset the order and all of that. And, you know, the, the book and the movie is not necessarily has has some criticisms of what he represents, too, versus the order represented by the mental institution. But really, in his relationship with Chief, it's all about getting this deliberately withdrawn character from moving out from within himself and moving out of the prison of his own mind, out of the prison of the mental institution, and then get out, mm -hmm. you know? I think that there's part of this that maybe we can read here in, in the early episodes of Mr. Robot here in season two. Like, is Mr. Robot really trying to take over Elliot? Or is he really trying to, like, push him out of this fantasy world and then out of the jail that he's in and re-engaging life? You yeah, know? yeah. No, th that is interesting. Jeff, let me hit you with this. Okay. Many years ago, when I was a teenager, my family and I traveled to London where we saw a performance of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on stage. Would you care to guess... Who played the Jack Nicholson role in that performance? Mm, could it be Christian Slater? It was Christian Slater! <laughs> wow. Which I am now assuming that this is all happening inside of my head, and you were trying to coax <laughs> me out of my own personal, like, Buffy mental insane asylum. There we go. Um, but, but, I mean, just to kind of, like, bottom line that, though, I think that for now, what I want to believe, and I think what works best for the show, is that when we're with Elliot, that's an illusion. When we're not with Elliot, and there are scenes that don't have anything to do with Elliot, that's real. Mm -hmm. That is actually objective, or not objective reality, but just like, that's actually happening in the real world. That, for example, the scene where Darlene gives, like, you know, the big speech to the F Society masses and kind of brings them to order and directs them toward new missions, that is happening in the world. Mm -hmm. That the evil corp CEO really is like telling Washington what to do, bullying them into bailouts and perpetuating the keep calm, carry on, restore to order fraud of, 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 of bringing society back into some kind of like stability. Like mm. those things are happening. But when Winworth Elliott, everything's up for grabs. Wait, well, and there's even this great, and again, I mean, you know, so much of what works for me with the show now, and I credit this entirely to Sam S. Mail, who seems to have decided to go full auteur this season in a way that I can only imagine must imply that there are three of him because <laughs> he is writing, I think, directing every episode, or, or certainly he's directing every episode. Um, but like, the, the, there is a great just cinematic quality to this show such that 
you know, when you have the chief technical officer of e the show's kind of, like, you know, stand-in for any corporation that you kind of don't like, when he is, like, burning millions of dollars, the camera specifically framed him with the Freedom Tower, and then there was that, there was, like, a sudden close-up on the tower afterwards, as if to just kind of underline, like, yeah. this, this weird, this great kind of, like, free-floating, you know, post-millennium paranoia about everything. Like, right. Like, like, when the show can dramatize it that well, I am kind of like, well, okay, like... Whether this is happening or not happening, this is clearly dramatizing the experience of Elliot as a person who is in this world and who we've already seen has sure. has very strange visions of what he can and can't do in sure. this world. But but at the same time, that Freedom Tower shot, which I was really puzzled, interested by that too. Like during the whole sequence, that's that's like one World Trade Center now. Yes, right? yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So um. So I thought I thought it was very interesting in that entire shot, that entire sequence. Whenever possible, Esmail is framing, you know, the establishing shots to make sure that we see that building in the background. Yeah. Now, this whole stunt that is being engineered by Darlene and F Society is all about reminding society that they're still out there, they're still fighting the war, that the war isn't over yet that don't like fall back into this false sense of complacency that society is okay, you know? Mm -hmm. So for me, one of the, like, I was really kind of like puzzled and maybe even troubled by why are we bringing in this icon of both American resilience, but also an attack on this horrible attack on America. So, yeah, I mean, I think that like, there's, there's lots of ways to interpret that. But one of them is that I wonder if that building was, was kept in that shot to sort of like inform the themes of what Darlene's trying to do, which is the idea of like, what has happened to us since 9-11, how we've responded to that. And this whole idea of like, well, let's let's rebuild. Let's pretend like nothing happened. You know, let's Mm -hmm. keep calm and carry on with our lives. And it's almost like, was Esmail maybe trying to critique a culture or society that it's, operates it is, like it that? Is very, it's very hard to tell. And I, I think that's what I like about the show is that given that it literally features characters who frequently rant about like the state of the world, the show itself seems very capable of pulling back and saying, like, I'm kind of handing this all to you and you make your own decision. For now, I like it too. Like, I like it too. I like that, like, I think what he's trying to do for now, especially with this episode, and maybe for some episodes to come, which is, okay, I see a lot of ways in which I can use this fantasy reality to catch resonances and allude to things in society. And I think that that are important to, like, just provoke and bug. I don't necessarily have a statement about that, but I like the idea that people are going to latch onto it, puzzle over it, be troubled by it. I like that. I think that's good. But he has to be careful, I think, about playing that for too long. Yeah. You know, if he wants to turn Mr. Robot and every single episode is a different rumination on a very specific idea or theme, cool. I think that very quickly, though, he's going to have to come to a place where he starts revealing, like, what is real in this season. And one possibility that we really haven't talked about and I wonder if this really works. They're going to have to start playing to it pretty aggressively. But, you know, Rami Malek is just so awesome as the center of the show that I don't know about if this idea that I'm about to propose to you can really work. But 
we we engage this show with a fundamental bias that may not be true, which is is that like this is a show about Elliot as expressed by Rami Malek, you know. Um, I think that one of the things that like the the premier was trying to like argue for, at least certainly Christian Slater's Mr. Robot was arguing for, is that he is the real personality here. He is authentic. He is, he's the real Elliot. Yeah, they they see me. Yeah. Right, they yeah. see me. And um I just kind of wonder if is it possible that you get a version of the show where it ends up being Christian Slater's Mr. Robot being kind of like the protagonist and Elliot is haunting him. You know Ooh, what I mean? I like that. Yeah. Jeff, we'll talk more about Mr. Robot because I'm guessing as they've not released screeners literally every week of this season may offer some interesting food We for might thought. have to have a weekly check-in on Mr. Robot. I hope so. Let's just talk briefly. We'll both be at Comic-Con this week. Busy schedules down there as uh, it's, it's the only kind of schedule to have at Comic-Con. Uh, what are you excited about as we are currently flipping through the EW issue uh, for the Comic-Con preview? Currently on stands with Mr. Idris Elba and Mr. Matthew McConaughey on the cover for their adaptation of Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Why do we need to go to Comic-Con? We, we have it right here. It's all right here, Entertainment Jeff. Weekly. Can you believe it? If you want to find out all the scoop on the new King Kong movie, which I provided because I talked to the director of Kong <laughs> Skull Island, it's right here for you. I'm sure there's nothing more you'll see at Comic-Con. Just kidding, you'll see lots of stuff. Seriously, I think that Anthony Bresnikan, who went to South Africa and spent a week on the set of The Dark Tower... Um, he brings you back a really killer scoop. I am fascinated by the Dark Tower adaptation. I mean, just because I, I've read all of the books and love them dearly. The, the final book is one of my favorite things ever. This is not something I ever thought could be adapted in any way. It just it felt like such a unique experience. And of course, he wrote it over the course of pretty much his entire career and is still writing it to a certain extent. But I mean, I, I gotta say, like Idris Elba looks pretty cool as Roland. <laughs> Look, I... Um, I can't say that I've been a huge Dark Tower fan. It's just, um, it's just, it's never really kind of like connected with me. I've never really sought it out. I have kind of complicated relationships to fantasy, like genre has been well documented yeah. on the show. But this looks great. I mean, it looks fascinating. What else is kind of uh, well, intriguing you? As, you know, as uh, among you know, we could count on a huge presentation. I believe from Marvel. I think this year Green. they are Comic Con, and I believe uh, you know we got some Doctor Strange and probably some some Guardians Two action. Coming. Look, I think that Guardians of the Galaxy has the potential to be a really huge movie next year. Yeah. Um, that 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 cast has only gotten more interesting since that movie hit, and I think that's might be the most fun single franchise that Marvel has. And I think that it's going to play a huge linchpin role in like connecting with the Infinity Gauntlet story that's going to like bring a lot of the Marvel saga to at least, if not a conclusion, at least a huge defining moment. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm just so tickled too. I mean, because again, like having grown up reading a lot of the out there kind of cosmic comics, you know, that yes. sort of that Starlin corner of the universe. Yeah. Like, you know, our own Clark Collis broke the news that Mantis is going to be in Woo-hoo! this new movie. 
movie. Mantis. And I'm just kind of like, you know, again, I'm just like, they're doing Mantis. Like, okay. Like, you know, there, there was a time where I assumed, like, all right, here are the 40 Marvel characters I can expect to <laughs> ever get to. But surely they'll never get to Mantis. You know, that is just so, and, and they're there now. So I'm kind of like, all right, like, let's let's see. You know, I, I believe in James Gunn's ability to kind of tap into what made the, what made those strange cosmic characters very fun to read about. Talk to me when they get to Two Gun Kid. Yeah, no, then I'll be really impressed. No, seriously. Adam, Are they ever going to get to Two Gun Kid? Adam Strange Warlock is re- remains for me probably kind of like I, I'd, I'd love to see some adaptation of Jim Starlin's run on Warlock. Oh my God. Was that because he came in? Warlock initially was sort of this this curious, almost like like Christ figure, and right. then Starlin was the guy who brought in the Magus, right? Right. The, oh, that Magus stuff is incredible. Yeah, that's just like weird and loopy and all. It's of that. so. Yeah. I, I mean, bizarrely, it ties back into Mister Robot, but it is this right. weird sense of like fighting your own self, and it's your future self, and just the the way in which that works is fascinating. Right. The fact that Thanos is almost like like a sideline character in all that is so interesting. And he becomes too. like an ally in yeah, all of that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I am at, I am interested in le- learning more about Doctor Strange. I think that this will be another real test of the Marvel brand uh, to see if it can open up a new front of a genre in the kind of stuff that it does. I, I love Benedict Cumberbatch. Scott Derrickson runs hot and cold for me, but like I, I, I'm hoping that this is a good movie for him. Yeah. Not interested in the Power Rangers. Not interested in it at all. I'm with you. I, I know that's not a Marvel thing, but I, it's it's here in our magazine on the Marvel page. And uh, I, I really don't care. Yeah, I just, you know, this is something that I was just the right age to watch a lot of Power Rangers as a kid and weirdly play a lot of the Sega Game Gear uh, Power Rangers. Um, you know, full full power to them doing what they do. It's not something that interests me. I, I, at this point, Jeff, the only thing that I'm interested in on the movie side, like at a deep down level, is like whatever they show of the Lego Batman movie, I expect to laugh and maybe even tear yes, up a little I bit. I know I know that you are really <laughs> looking forward to the Lego Batman movie. Uh, so am I. I don't know if that's going to be a great panel. Let's talk about Comic-Con. You know, there's two ways to make a big splash at Comic-Con. One is that you show footage. And that you have just an amazingly entertaining panel mm-hmm. that gets like the entertainment journalist writers there kind of like, oh, this funny joke yes. that Robert Downey Jr. made. Yes. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy has that potential. Oh, absolutely. But while we're talking good panels, I, I want to shift to the main TV show that I am very excited to hear about and which I imagine can lead to a fantastic panel. But um, American Gods, the Neil Gaiman adaptation. Uh, the show is co-showrun by two of my favorite people in entertainment, Michael Green and Brian Fuller. Uh, the cast is really interesting. We got your uh, uh, Ricky Whittle from The 100, Ian McShane. I'm not sure who all is going to be there from the show but any of those people didn't even mention that Gillian Anderson is also a key yes. figure on the show like you put any of those people on stage and I think that is a very entertaining thought-provoking series of statements come out of that in terms of comic-con being a preview of the pop culture that I am most excited about for sure American Gods ranks really high there you know I've become a huge fan of that book I reviewed it for us when it first came out. And I think I gave it like, I gave it a B. Ooh. Maybe even a B minus. And I've said this before, there are reviews that I've written here that I regret. American Gods though is my biggest regret because I do think that that is a really great story. And I actually want to revisit 
the book before the show comes out and and almost like publicly apologize to Neil Gaiman for giving him a B. Didn't you make the case in that review, Jeff? Like a lot of it is like interesting visual stuff that maybe didn't necessarily play in in just pure word form. Wasn't that kind of one element of Yeah, I said something that probably really pissed Gaiman off, which is (laughs) that, and it's not what he wanted to hear at that point in his career, which was, that it would have been better as a graphic novel. Right, yeah. Um, what else on the TV side are you kind of interested in, Jeff? Um, probably one of the newsiest panels, and always, for sure, one of the most entertaining panels that you get from Comic-Con is the Walking Dead panel. That's going to really be an interesting bit of public relations that that show has to do, because they're going to probably bring a lot of their cast, as usual, They'll surely bring Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Negan uh, with them. But we're probably watching a panel play out in front of us in which one of those people is dead. So how are they going to address that? Yeah. Like, and How are they going to tap dance around all of that? It's going to be really interesting. I have a sense, cause like obviously they'll all be on stage, but there may be a lot of it that is like let's let's put Jeffrey Dean Morgan in his Negan outfit and you know give him give him the baseball bat and let him kind of you know if there's any theatrical performance that seems like guaranteed to happen to be something like that. Here's a radical idea: Is there any upside? Is there any smart play to be made by revealing at the panel? Who Negan killed. Ooh, that's interesting, Jeff. And turning the panel into some kind of like announcement about who died and using this as an opportunity to say goodbye to that actor. Oh, I love that. The panel kind of becomes like farewell to probably the guy who plays Abraham is is, <laughs> is my guess. Wasn't that... Sure, Isn't that the, your guess? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. There, Ooh, there are other, I like that. There are other ways for the show to do that. Clearly, like on the Talking Dead, but given the real mixed reaction, if not negative reaction, of certainly critics and <laughs> and, and some of the fans about that cliffhanger, is there a way to start correcting that? Maybe they, they don't need a career. I know. I mean, they, they have us in the palm of their hands. Here's what I love about this, though, Jeff. Because, I mean, I, I'm someone who, I, I've said before, sometimes I love The Walking Dead. There are whole seasons I love. There are whole seasons that I don't love. This last season was more, like, was more the don't love category until the end, which was aggressively in the don't love category. It It is a show that is very close to making the jump from scripted entertainment to sports in terms of how we receive it. And I'm tickled by the idea that they basically turn Comic-Con into like their NFL draft. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like, like this thing that isn't actually a part of the sport. And yet, if you are deeply into the show, which a lot of people are, since a lot of people stick around to watch the after show each week, I'm tickled by the idea that like they now turn, this is now a part of our running narrative. It is not just The Walking Dead, a TV show with that airs the X, X many episodes. Like, like you can expect that a part of watching this show is at Comic-Con. We will, we, we will announce this revelation. I, I, I like that idea so, a lot. Yeah, so, yeah. If the revelation of who Negan killed is going to be made in the opening moments of the season premiere, why not show those first seven minutes at Comic Con? Yeah, ooh, I like that, and then and then release it immediately online. Right. Yeah. So like we are going to resolve this cliffhanger now, and then make the conversation about the season premiere to be about 
then where does the show go from here? Yeah, I like that. I hope that's what happens. I'm, I'm guessing it's not what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> the one other thing that I'm excited about, uh, and I'll be, I'll be, I'll be covering this panel, uh, is there's a big Star Trek panel happening, a celebration of 50 years, which also somewhat implicitly seems to be looking forward to the new TV series, moderated by Brian Fuller, right? Yeah, yes, like Brian Fuller is there. You're going to have your William Shatner, who I always find to be a very entertaining figure sure. at, at these things. Any other thoughts on Comic Con, Jeff? As as we stare down the barrel of what is sure to be the biggest and most exciting Comic-Con in the history of cons? Well, a couple things. I mean, obviously, um, I think I will be going to the Mr. Robot panel. So I will be looking forward to that. Or will you? Or or am I really there at all? Um, um, I think among new shows, I'm really excited about the new sitcom with uh, Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, The Good Place from Michael Schur from Parks and Rec. That has a lot of promise I love the idea of the Comic-Con vibe in general. I mean, within an hour of being there and walking around, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is why I can't wait to leave. Um, <laughs> it's hot. It's sweaty. There's a lot of people. There's just a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like it's like going to Las Vegas. I sound like, like it's I just, don't like people. No, no, no. But it, it, it just, it's a lot. And like I think that each year, I always get a little anxious about it beforehand. But then once you are there, there is that quality of being. Because I last year, Jeff, I finally got to bring my parents to Comic-Con. And it was their first time. And my, my mom is a big culture person. She watches more things than I do. My dad, uh, I, I would guess, was very confused by the vast majority of things he saw. But they were very taken away by just the sheer, uh, you know, the, the sheer, here it is, like a whole gigantic snow globe city that appears out of nowhere and everyone's dressed up in things. And I that, that in a way, I think, brought me back to what is fun about it. So I, I uh, faith in, in humanity, in all of its crowded, sweaty glory restored. Right. Well, I mean, it, it has become a very different kind of thing over the past, like, 10, 12 years. And it's an easy thing for especially people who have been there many, many times over many years can be really jaded and cynical about. That said, from the fan point of view, the the occasional visitor or the especially the first time visitor, it is a rather like really kind of awesome spectacle <laughs> of, of a lot of things, a lot of things that you could be cynical about, that you could be critical about. But there's a ton of create, creativity at play. Um, you know, it's a, it is kind of a celebration of of a lot of the crazy things that have that make us that have captured our imaginations that are very meaningful. But on a fan level, just the way people express themselves, and for the most part, the the camaraderie and the spirit of of a lot of people. There's some dark sides and some edginess to like to, to that culture down there, but. Um, but it is, but it can be quite cool. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, if anybody's going to be there, uh, be sure to swing by Con X, yes. EW's big space right nearby the convention center. And uh, we'll be back after Comic-Con, probably talking about Mr. Robot and reality. And Suicide Squad, maybe? That's and Suicide Squad, up. it's coming right up. I can't wait. We might need to dig into Star Trek, too, because I think by the time that we come back, Star Trek will be in play. Uh, Jeff, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.